0: You shouldn't shave, but cultivate your down and let it grow. So when you do return, it will be soft and white as snow. Your lovely Jane will be surprised to all begin to cook. The greenhorn to his mother will say, how savage I must look. Welcome we back to the American series Writers series. 100 Pages at a Time podcast. Uh, in this episode, I'll be beginning a new series. And this series is going to be a really in-depth look at the works of Francis Parkman Jr. Now, who is that? Well, Francis Parkman Jr. is one of the most important early American historians. He was, in fact, trained at Harvard by the first professor at the first history professor at Harvard University. Um, And he would uh, write one of the great works in American historiography, um, the French and British in in North America. Sorry, I got that wrong. France and England in North America is the name of the work. It it accompanies seven volumes. It's almost 3,000 pages in the Library of America. It is, you know, it covers everything from the earliest French exploration of, of the Mississippi and the Great Lakes, all the way through the Jesuit missions to the early settlements even in of the French in, in Florida, all the way up to the defeat of the French Empire in the Seven Years of War, right on the cusp of the American Revolution in 1763. It is a massive work. It has had such a profound influence on on American historical writing, especially on historical writing of the frontier. And yes, it's extremely problematic. It's depiction, their de- Francis Parkman's depiction of Native Americans, his depiction, his way of writing about the history of the frontier. Yes, it's flawed, it, and we're gonna talk about those flaws at nauseum in this series, but it also is just an amazing work um, by an amazing historian who, who made it his life work to understand uh, this the the history of colonial America, uh, from the perspective of competing empires and, and and the interactions between Indians and 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 European settlers and and empires and conquerors. It it's so rich, uh, and it, you can study this, you know, for many years to fully digest all of it. I've read it once before, and I'm looking forward to reading it once again in some more detail. Um, so, what are we going to do in this series? Well, um, first, we're going to look at, and then and the next three episodes would be more like a, a kind of an introduction to Francis Parkman. I'll talk a little bit about his biography and talk about his first work, which isn't a historical work. It's called uh, The Oregon Trail. It's got a subtitle, I think. Uh, Sketches of Prairie and Rocky Mountain Life, published as a book in 1849. Uh, originally published in magazines in 18, starting in 1847. It actually counts events that actually happened to him in 1846. It's not a work of history. It's not even a, a story of the Oregon Trail that much. It just happens to be that he traveled on the Oregon Trail in, in an interest to get to, to, to experience life in the, in the frontier. Uh, and he goes, to, you know, he's part of buffalo hunts and things like that. So it's all recounted in that book. And then we'll look at his very first work of history, uh, which is The Conspiracy of Pontiac, which is about the the uprising against the British Empire by Native Americans in the aftermath of the Seven Years' War. When the French were finally kicked out, many Indians lost uh, a major ally in the French. And so fearful of British uh, expansion into the West, they uh, stand up to the British and there's a war fought. Uh, as part of that conflict. Um, That of course is critical for the American Revolution because Pontiac's revolt helped push the British to impose the proclamation line of 1763, which of course was one of the major grievances for the colonists that that led to the American Revolution. So we'll look at his history of, of Pontiac, Um, And that's the first volume of the Library of America's collection of Francis Parkman Jr.'s writings. And then we'll jump right into the French and English, or France and England uh, in North America, uh, which is made up of seven different volumes uh, collected in two massive thick books. They're some of the thickest of the Library of America uh, collection that I own. I think they're each 1,400 pages or so. Um, But we're going to go through it step by step. Dig into uh, American historiography. Dig into Francis Parkman's own life and his struggles to write history. Uh, study it as a, a work of history, but also study it as a document of his own time, and as a record of this epic, you know, near global. A, con- a conflict of, of global significance the conflict between britain and england in the 17th and 18th century so i'm very very excited to jump into some new topics i spent a lot of time looking at fiction writing and some nonfiction writing by american women in the 20th century but you know i keep getting pulled back to to two epochs in this podcast one is the 19th century um you know and i was actually thinking maybe i should do Thoreau. Maybe I should do Hawthorne, but it was in the 19th century or the early 20th century, the, the time of the Progressive Era. Those are some the two periods that maybe interest me the most in, in American history. But here we are. We're going to look at Parkman. I'm committed to it. So um, over the next 30, 40 episodes, maybe around 40, maybe somewhere between 30 and 40 episodes, we're going to be unpacking uh, the works of this historian. So if you're not familiar with him, uh, I urge you to bear with me and hopefully you'll find something of interest in his, in his writings. He's, a, uh, he's an interesting guy to, to unpack just how Americans were looking at the frontier at a time when the American frontier was expanding to a new, new stage, uh, as Americans started to move out to the West, to California, conquering Indian people out in the West. And Parkman's writing about these earlier conflicts. At the same time that the Indian Wars are taking place, uh, that the West is being, you know, tamed, quote unquote, tamed, as, as some people like to think about it. Um, and yes, his works—if you want to understand how American historians have looked at the American West—you have to look at Francis Parkman Jr.'s writings. I, I think I really believe that. So, um, yeah, let's let's jump into this. All right, so the Oregon. The Oregon Trail. I, right. I lived in Oregon for a while. So the, I was listening to an audiobook version, LibriVox, of it. And, and that guy stopped saying Oregon. Um, I don't know what Francis Parkman would have said. I don't know. The, the New England accent for it, maybe. Okay. Um, yeah, let's talk about Francis Parkman first a little bit. Uh, he, he was born in 1823. He is from pretty strong New England stock. His family in, in America goes back to um, a, a line of clergymen, including Indian fighter and diarist, Ebenezer Parkman. So, diarist, Ebenezer Parkman. So there's a Library of America volume right there, if if they run out of ideas of people to, to publish. Um, but it seems uh, uh, f- from clergy, from New England clergy, and from uh, New England stock. Now, for most of his life, Francis Parkman had various health problems. That's one notable thing about him. Um, from a very young age, he started to exhibit um, various health problems. That now this didn't stop him from exploring the wilderness, of uh, going on different adventures throughout his life, including the one documented in the Oregon Trail. It's just he often did suffer from very, very various health problems and nervous breakdowns, and and other. Um, other ailments, I don't know what all they were clinically, but he had a, uh, just a lot of significant um, problems that made it hard for him to work. And these all culminate in the, the, the gradual loss of his eyesight. So he could barely see very well by his early, he used young adulthood. He had trouble seeing, his eyesight was going. By the end of this, his life, he couldn't even write anymore. He had to have people read doc- historical documents to him and he just had to remember what was said in them. Uh, later on, he had to do like what Milton did where people would actually copy what he said. At times he tried various inventions to write while essentially blind or he'd use a special box which allow him to steady his hand while he tried to write. Um, but eventually he had to have various aides help him do that. So these, these plagued him throughout his life. And the fact that he was able to do so much original research, get so many original documents, get them in some cases from Europe, uh, investigate them fully and and put them all together into really, really compelling and exciting narratives um, with all these health ailments is, is, is a striking um, thing. Uh, so he was educated from a young age quite classically in Boston, as you might accept, expect from his family background. They end up living in the family estate, which apparently is described in the Library of America, um, Biography here as a as a mansion the family mansion Um, So he you know, he's a very very strongly educated Um, That's most of his young life is dedicated to his his education in Boston Uh, he starts Harvard in 1840 and Around this time he begins to have an interest in both the wilderness you know exploring the frontier personally individually going into the woods and going on various expeditions. Um, And he explores nearby. And he also starts studying history once he gets to Harvard academically. Of course, he studied history um, in his earlier schooling as well, but studying it academically. And he does this under Jared Sparks. Jared Sparks was indeed the very, very first Harvard uh, history professor. The first, um, he, he like founds the Harvard history department. And inspired by Jared Sparks and his own interest in, in the West, he begins historical research in 1842, including very, very in-depth studies of, of the Indians, uh, particularly the Ottawas. He starts studying Pontiac. As we'll see, the horse that he takes on his Oregon trail expedition, he, his, Ponte, his name Pontiac. So from a quite young age, he had an interest in Pontiac. And it's not surprising that the first book he writes is Conspiracy in Pontiac. In fact, that's what he wanted to write first. The Oregon Trail, The Oregon Trail only really is, he writes it because he felt he didn't have enough material, enough historical evidence to begin writing The Conspiracy of Pontiac. But he wanted to publish something. And so he publishes this book called The Oregon Trail. Um now, in 1843, only three years into his Harvard studies, his health begins to experience uh, decline significantly. He's, he's like an unable to attend physical education courses. Nevertheless, he travels to Europe. He tours Italy. He tours um, England, going to London. And in 1844, graduating from Harvard, he begins study at what is now Harvard Law School. It had a different name then. And that's when he begins studying Pontiac in in a little bit more with more seriousness Um, his eyes begin to trouble him around this time as well and he starts to experience other nervous conditions that will plague him throughout his 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 life Uh, graduates from Harvard Law School in 1845 and one year later in 1846 he decides to do this tour of the West Uh, he goes with a man named Quincy Adam Shaw a friend of his um, in fact, many of the other expeditions, he went with friends, so he, he rarely went alone. So he was a fairly social person and he had a strong network of friends who he could count on to go on him with these, these expeditions and these events over several months. He goes all the way out to Fort Laramie, goes hunting with the Indians, lives in different Indian villages during this. What he doesn't do is go on the Oregon, Oregon trail, like a settler, like, you know, like that video game he doesn't go through all those steps he you know kind of is parallel to it for a while but he hires these guides who just will sort of take him around through the prairies and through the rocky mountains so that's his real interest is just kind of exploring the west getting to know the indians firsthand doing some primary research i mean it veers on ethnography in fact it's not purely historical research in fact if you were just to read this you wouldn't think you're reading a historian you would think you're reading like a tourist's account of his expedition to to the West. And when you start reading The Conspiracy of Pontiac, you feel right away the shift where he starts to be, you know, writing like a fairly modern historian. I think if you're used to reading history, recently published history, and you pick up this, it, it doesn't feel that dated except in some of the ideology that's behind it some of the attitudes towards indians the attitudes towards the frontier they're dated certainly the philosophy behind it's a bit dated but the writing style is quite um up to date and quite modern and brisk and that's it's and it's really well written it's like you know historians strive to be good writers and be interesting and tell stories and parkman does that really really well he's a great storyteller Um, anyways he starts publishing The Oregon Trail in 1847 and let me see if I can get the exact journal he published in Uh, he publishes it in Knickerbocker just as a Bostonian Uh, he starts researching Pontiac at this time Um, listen to this has documents read aloud to him and writes in a box fitted with wire grids that guide his hands begins drafting manuscript on Pontiac Um, so it's in 1949 that the California Oregon Trail is published now it's issued now is the Oregon Trail um, and maybe the California Oregon Trail is a more accurate name I don't know but if you want to pick this up thinking you're going to get a history thinking you're going to get a even a a narrative of life on the Oregon Trail you're not going to get it you get very little there's some on the side where you, you sense some of the danger settlers faced the threats to life and limb uh, the natural environment, the animals they would meet on the trail, that's all there. It's all part of Parkman's um, story here, but it's not really what we get. We, we really get a story of a guy kind of hovering around the Oregon Trail doing his own thing with his, with his friends and his guide, whose real interest seems to be in exploring the West, exploring Indian communities, and exploring the people and collecting stories about the people who populate the West. And that I think is the main reason people might want to go to this book even now is it's wonderful on just the characters, the diversity of people, the odd types of people they run into. It, you know, it's, you kind of lose yourself, I think, especially with the audiobook version. It's, you know, they're there, they're there. Sometimes it's hard to really know where you are at any one, one point it seems kind of meandering but there's such crisp memorable characters that that you run into whether they're you know like f- bo- like f- half french half indian fur traders out in the west doing their own thing or certain members of indian communities you know that are really larger than life personalities and parkman does a really really beautiful job of documenting these individuals Documenting their experiences and their stories, and that makes this book quite a lot of fun. I think. Now, for this book, I, I'm not going to do kind of a chapter chapter read. There's, it's, I mean, there's, it doesn't really work that way. I think. I mean, this book was originally published serially, so it would have been, you know, you pick up the Knickerbocker and you read a little vignette of of the West of the Indians or whatever, and then you, you start not think about it for another month or whatever until the next issue comes out and then you, you read a little bit more of it and, and that's how it feels. It it doesn't really like flow together as a very as as a narrative so much. It's a lot of little vignettes, a lot of little stories, set pieces about the people and places in the West. So I'm just gonna give you some of my general feelings about the first part of this book. The first it's about three hundred pages long. In the Library of America, a little bit more. So, I'll just kind of go through the first seven, eight. I don't know, is it nine? Maybe nine chapters. But I'm not going to go chapter by chapter through this. Um, yeah. But I, I do sort of recommend this book if you 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 want those kinds of stories. It's really for the personalities. I think. I think that is why people might might enjoy this now. Is is the type of people you run into. Um, the first thing we learn, though and in, in chapter in chapter one is just how diverse this uh this frontiers is how busy the economy is how diverse the emigrants are um you know here they, they start out on a boat actually going down the i guess it's is it down the mississippi let's see the missouri the missouri okay uh Quote, the passengers on board the Radnor correspond with her freight in her cabin were Santa Fe tra- tra- traders, gamblers, speculators and adventurers of various descriptions. But her steers were crowded with Oregon emigrants, mountain men, Negroes and a party of Kansas Indians who have been on a visit to St. Louis. I mean, that is the feel you get kind of on almost every page of this of this book is that this whole huge region, I mean, the size of Europe, this this massive great west is changing dramatically and it's changing through migrations of people it's trading through like the integration of these regions into into global capitalism or american capitalism and and indeed global capitalism really where you have uh you know people from all over the world coming in uh whether it's traders fur traders or or you know or people migrating to become farmers eventually of course it's going to be miners and ranchers and 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 cowpunchers and on and on. I mean, it's just setting the stage for this you know, this massive story of empire, of American empire and you know, and, and of of global capitalism. It it's all right here. Um in its in its still in its early stages. Uh we're introduced to uh basically there there's Four main people that are in this group, but they're, they're never alone. They're always with other groups of emigrates. They're with, you know, they, they tag along with traders from time to time, live with Indians. So even though you got this core group of four, there's always running into and traveling with other people that we get to meet. Um, but the main group is Parkman himself, um, his friend Shaw. These were the, the like the two tourists. And they have their guides, uh, Delore. Delore? Delore? D-E-L-O-R-I-E is his name. Um, and Henry Chatillon. These are these two men who are their guides. These are kind of interesting characters. Quote, Delorier was a Canadian with all the characteristics of a true Jean Baptiste. Neither fatigue, exposure, nor hard labor could ever impair his cheerfulness and gaiety or his obsqueousness, his obsqueousness politeness to his bourgeois. And when night came, he would sit down by the fire, smoke his pipe, and tell stories with the utmost contentment. In fact, the prairies was his congenial element. Henry Chatelon was of a different stamp. When we were at St. Louis, several of the gentlemen of the fur company had kindly offered to procure for us a hunter and guide suited to our purpose. And on coming upon one afternoon to our office, we found there a tall and exceedingly well-dressed man with a face so open and frank that it attracted our notice at once. We were surprised to be told that it was he who wished to guide us to the mountains. He was born in a little French town near St. Louis. Lewis and from the age of 15 years he'd been constantly in the neighborhood of the Rocky Mountains employed for the most part by the company to supply their forts with buffalo meat. As a hunter he had but one rival in the whole region a man named Shimonol who, who with whom to the honor of both of them he was on terms of closest friendship um, so these guys are all uh, they're all really they're characters and they're fairly memorable characters I think um, you know Chatillon is kind of the depiction, is depicted as this, this noble gentleman, frontiersman. Uh, Delier is more of the kind of the more of the French fur trader stock, right? The storytelling kind of a little bit more rough type of character. Um, of course, early on, we're introduced to the large number of Indians who are interacting with this Euro-American population of of emigrates and settlers and traders and and empire builders. Um, The first town they visit, Westport. Westport was full of Indians whose little shaggy ponies were tied by dozens along the houses and fence. Sacks and foxes with shaved heads and painted faces. Shawanos and Delawares fluttering in calico frocks and turbans. Hawaiian dots dressed like white men and a few wretched cans Kansas, wrapped in old blankets, were strolling along the streets or lounging in and out of the shops and houses. As I stood at the door of the tavern, I saw a remarkable-looking person coming up the street. He had a ruddy face, garnished with the stumps of a bristly red beard and a mustache. On one side of his head, and a round cap with a knob at the top, such as Scottish laborers sometimes wear. His coat was on a nondescript form, made of gay Scotch plaid. In this curious attire, I recognized Captain C of the British Army who with his brother, a Mr. R, an English gentleman, were bound on a hunting expedition across the continent. Um, so it's just such a, a mixture of people and personalities, and everything's in motion. And then another thing we're told early on by Parkman is just the immense expanse of, of the West. There's busy places with this diverse population and people coming and going, but there's other times where they don't see another person for days and days. Um, and just the immense, just the immense expanse of of the West, of the prairie, and the natural awesomeness of it. I mean, I mean, I think an environmental historian could read this account, or someone just interested in the history of the ecology of the West, to read this account and contrast it to the the what capitalism did to the West by the end of the twentieth nineteenth century, um, and. And be moved by it. I mean, this is before the buffalo were wiped out of existence. This is before the prairie was transformed into farms. This was, you know, when it was still not wild. I mean, obviously you had civilizations living there. But, you know, that ecology was still, it still had that natural um, element. It wasn't completely commodified yet. And, but it was on its way to being commodified. And you see the beginning of that commodification in the actions of Parkman. You know, he's there to hunt. A lot of these people are on hunting expeditions. Well, yes, obviously, the West will become a commodity, of, you know, and, and at some, there was a process for it to become commodities, whether that was meat or grain or, or whatever, right, or land, um, Parkman realizes very early on that uh, d- the diversity of Indian people, and I think that's one as is, is problematic as Parkman's depiction of Indians are, and we'll get into that quite a bit more in this book in the future next two episodes and in The Conspiracy of Pontiac and throughout all of his work, he does acknowledge their diversity, but also um, not just the diversity of cultures, but the diversity of of status and how some have benefited a lot more from this changing west. And, and it seems that it was the Kansas Indians who were the most um, miserable in Parkman's view. Uh, he's got this story here. Scarcely were we seated when a visitor approached. This was an old Kansas Indian, a man of distinction, if one might judge from his dress. His head was shaved and painted red, and from the tuft of hair remaining on the crown dangled several eagle feathers and the tail of two or three rattlesnakes. His cheeks, too, were daubed with vermilion. His ears were adorned with green glass pendants, a collar of grizzly bear's clawed surrounded his claws surrounded his necks, and several large necklaces of wampum hung on his breast. Having shaken us by the hand with his cordial grunt of salutation, the old man dropped his red blanket from his shoulders, sat down cross legged on the ground. In the absence of liquor, we offered him a sweetened a cup of sweetened water, at which he ejaculated Good And was beginning to tell us how great a man he was and how many pawnees he had killed when suddenly a motley concourse appeared wading across the creek towards us. They filed past in rapid succession, men, women, and children, some were on horseback, some on foot, but all were alike, squalid and wretched. Old squaws mounted astride the shaggy, meager little ponies with perhaps one or two snake-eyed children seated behind them, clinging to their tattered blankets. Tall, lank, young men on foot with bows and arrows in their hands and girls whose native ugliness not at all the whose native ugliness not at all the charms of glass beads and scarlet cloth could disguise made up the procession although here and there a man who like our visitors seemed to hold some rank of this respectable community they were the dregs of the kansas nation who while their betters were off to hunt the buffalo had left the village on the begging expedition to westport so in the midst of this this visit to this first town they, they stop at westport we see essentially a refugee band of of beggars, uh, from a, it seems a starving village of, of Kansas Indians and Parkman doesn't tell us quite why they're so hard off, but I have a hard time believing it doesn't have something to do with the changing West, the Imperial West, you know, the West becoming the center of the American empire. Um, so this expedition is, 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 that took place during the Mexican War so we see some of the consequences of that as well we see troop movements we witness you know troops going off to the west crossing through this area on the way that's in the backdrop of all this which of course is another part of of US Empire is you know stealing half of Mexico you know in a war of aggression Um, but that's in the backdrop of your two so you know this even though I think Parkman doesn't want to really talk about it in these terms, he, and that's not his goal. We now looking back at this can read this as, a, as someone witnessing a, a, an imperial frontier and, and uh, the expansion of a nation you know, into, into this territory, um, which you can only get by through devastation and violence and conquest and the impoverishment of, of the people who, who live there so yeah i don't know much more i want to say uh some interesting stuff about latter-day saints shows up in this book the uh you know you do have the lds migration around the same time as the oregon oregon trail uh and the the latter you know the mormons who are of course fleeing the midwest you know are due persecution eventually to settle in utah that migration is taking place and you have always rumors that, oh, those emigrants, they're LDS or or they're, you know, those people are, um, you know, you got to watch out for them. Just the overall hostility towards this religious minority is a a fascinating part of this story as well. It comes up quite a lot, actually. So, yeah, I'm going to close pretty soon. Uh, As I said, I'm not going to go through chapter by chapter in this. I just want to give you a feel of what is in this book. I'll I'll decide what to do in the next section. Uh, Basically, you know, they just go out west and they they meet with different Indian tribes, go to different camps, meet different people. And and that's it's a lot of fun, though. I I enjoyed it. But I really love this particular story um, where they're at this Indian camp and they meet uh, an Indian by the name of the hog. A big fat man, but the richest man in town, the richest man in the village. we stopped not far from the Indian camp and having invited some of the chiefs and warriors to dinner, placed before them a sumptuous repast of biscuits and coffee. Squatted in a half circle on the ground, they soon disposed of it. As we rode forward on the afternoon journey, several of our late guests accompanied accompanied us. Among the rest was a huge, bloated savage of more than 300 pounds weight, christened La Cochon, in consideration of his preposterous dimensions and certainly corresponding traits of his character. The hog, bestrode a little white pony, scarce able to bear up under the enormous burden, though by way of keeping up the necessary stimulus, the rider kept both feet in constant motion, playing alternatively against his ribs. The old man was not a chief. He never had ambition enough to become one, but was not a warrior nor a hunter, for he was too fat and lazy, but he was the richest man in the whole village. Riches among the Dakotas consisted in horse, And of these, the hog had accumulated more than 30. He had already 10 times as many as he wanted, yet his appetite for horses was insatiable. Trotting up to me, he shook my hand and gave me to understand that he was a very devoted friend. And then he began a series of most earnest signs and gestulations. His oily countenance radiated with smiles, and his little eyes peeped out with cunning twinkles from beneath the mass of his flesh that almost obscured him. Knowing nothing at all of the time of the sign language of the Indians, I could only guess at his meaning. So I called on Henry to explain it. The hog, it seems, was very anxious to include a matrimonial bargain. He said he had a very pretty daughter in his lodge, whom he would give me if I would give him my horse. These flatting overtures I choose to reject, at which the hog, still laughing with undiminished good humor, gathered his robe about his shoulders and rode away. Um, That's just one of of dozens and dozens of people Parkman meets uh, on the Oregon Trail. And... He must have took very very careful notes because you know how someone could have remembered all these details unless he's you know extrapolating a little bit in hindsight. Um, But um, I think next time I want to talk more about the depiction of the Indians though uh, because really the second third of the book they spend mostly with various Indian villages and, and hunting groups. So I'm going to kind of. Step away from just my my the fun I've had with this book, and maybe get a little bit more serious about how Francis Parkman Jr. De, you know describes the the Native Americans. Um, so I think I'll do that next time, and I think the last episode I, I might talk more about ecology or environment a little bit more. But this will do for an introduction to Francis Parkman and to the book The Oregon Trail. So I urge you to to check it out if you're interested in it. But you know. Definitely, France and England in North America worth reading. Uh, it's I'm sure it's public domain. You can probably find a copy of it. Um, pretty cheap, or just download one. It's it's such a great work of history, um, and yeah. Uh, so that'll be it for now. Um, if you have any of your own thoughts, if you're if you're lucky enough to have read the Oregon Trail, let me know what you think. Send me your your comments below, or send me an email. Um, and I'll be back shortly with uh, part two of my thoughts on the Oregon Trail by Francis Parkman Jr. I uh, also want to say I've started up uh, my H.P. Lovecraft series, which I'll be doing much like my Phil K. Dick series. We'll be looking at every work individually, not doing the 100 pages for that. That's like a special series. The H.P. Lovecraft book club. And i'm going to look at everything by lovecraft i can get my hands on so if you're interested in lovecraft go check out that that will be uploaded starting to be uploaded on the same time as this this episode so uh that's what it for now like uh, thanks for bread for and meat for coffee and for brains your 60 days are a hundred or more in your grub you've got to divide i